Matthew chapter 20 this morning. Matthew chapter 20. And here we have the account of a story uh, of a mother who wanted only the best for her sons. Now that's not unusual for a, a mom to just want her best or the best for her sons uh, because she loved them. Uh, she was uh, she was grateful for them, and uh, she had great dreams for them. She came to Jesus one day with kind of quite a request. She asked uh, that when Jesus comes into his kingdom, uh, he would have one of her boys sitting on his right hand and the other one of her boys sitting on the left hand. And she wanted her sons to have places of highest honor. Uh, no small dreams here. And we live in an ambitious world. Uh, we want to know... Who's the best? Uh, who's the fastest? Who's the smartest? Who's the strongest? Who's the loudest? Who's the longest? Who's the richest? Uh, all these things, bigger, better, uh, all, all the time wanting to know who's the best. Well, this is a common thing, especially among parents. Uh, all they have to do is go to some Little League baseball or basketball or soccer Games and you can see par parents uh, performing at their worst, uh, even though their kids are trying to do their best. Um, we often think our children are the best. Nobody can beat my kid. He's the best one in the block. And we go to great lengths to let others know that they uh, are in reality what they might not be. Well, let's face it. Life is about winning and losing. You know, that's why we keep score. That's why we love sports and we love board games and uh, we like to play games and we like to see who's going to win. This idea of everybody's a winner uh, just doesn't quite fly with me. I mean, uh, when I told, had basketball players, when I had a basketball team, I didn't go say, well, you just go ahead and good time and uh, whatever happens, happens. I said, you know what? We need to remember one thing. We're going out there to win this game. I encourage our ball players to win. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Life is about winning. Life is about losing. Sometimes there's winners, sometimes there's losers. We want to know who's up and who's down, who's hot, who's not. And some people are good losers, and then there are others that aren't such good losers. Well, that's why this mother came to Jesus. In the great game of life, she wanted to make sure her boys came out ahead. If that Men asking for a favor from the Lord, she was glad to do it because she felt her boys deserved it. She had big dreams and her sons had large ambitions. And despite what you might think, ambition itself is not evil. If you don't have any ambition, why'd you even get up out of bed this morning, huh? You've got to have some ambition. Uh, you might as well just rolled over and slept all day. Ambition is merely a strong desire regarding the future. As such, it can be positive or negative. It can be good or it can be bad. It can be righteous or it could be evil. It can be very useful if we are ambi ambitious for the right things. So what are your ambitions this morning? What do you dream about? What are your secret hopes for your life? Someone has reminded us there are two trage tragedies in life. One is to lose your heart's desire the other is to gain it. And the setting of our text here, I believe, is crucial. This event, which is recorded both by Matthew and Mark, occurs at the near, uh, near the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, 
It takes place about a week before the crucifixion as Jesus and his disciples are walking through, uh, the, down through, uh, to Jerusalem. And these are final action-packed days as the clock kind of ticks down toward the climax of Jesus' public ministry. And while Jesus is coming to grips with the bloody death that looms before him, his top men are angling for a better seat in the kingdom. And who would blame them? Everyone wants to be somebody. We all want to be near the center of power. And we say, or at least we think, if I can't be somebody, let me be near somebody who is somebody. Well, that's the way we think, and sometimes we bask in the reflected glow of greatness. It's easy to feel that knowing God entitles us to a special preferment. Lord, I'm your servant. You have to answer this prayer, Lord. I'm your servant. I've been faithful to you. Now, you keep up your end of the bargain. I don't know if that's such a good way to talk to the Lord, is it? Well, with that background, let's consider the conversation that we have here between a mother of two sons and Jesus. Notice, number one, high ambition. High ambition. Look down at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 20. Verse 20 and 21. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these, two, these my two sons may sit, one, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Now, it may be easy at this point to criticize this woman. In reality, she's doing what any other mother would do, probably. I can't blame her for coming to Jesus. It must have been quite a scene. Here comes this mother with her two grown boys in tow. Remember, James and John are full-fledged apostles. They are at least 25 years old, probably over 30. The parallel passage in Mark chapter 10 makes it clear that the boys had the same question in mind. It's obvious that the boys and their mother had discussed all this previously. Perhaps the mother is involved because they all agree that Jesus would be more sympathetic if she asked. Come on, Mom, you ask him, you ask him, you know. <laughs> and our kids do that sometimes, don't they? they don't, they're afraid to ask, and so they say, Mom, you do it. Perhaps she was involved because uh, it, they thought the request would be better from her. So she kneels humbly before Jesus, asks with great respect, that James and John be given the seats of highest honor in the kingdom. And at this point, we come against the danger that all parents face. Easy to want your children to fulfill our dreams instead of what God wants for them. You may have an idea of what you want for your child, but God may have a different idea. It's easy to want our children to fulfill our dreams. And often we try to force our children to into a mold of our choosing. And we need to think about that. Your desires and God's desires for your children may not be the same. Now having said that, I should add that there are several arguments in favor of what this mother did. Number one, this was the Lord's kingdom. The Lord's kingdom. First, she clearly believes that Jesus will one day have a kingdom of his own. Not many people that day believed that. 
He didn't look or he didn't act or sound like a typical king. To many people, he seemed like just any other itinerant rabbi from Galilee. His followers were more like a ragtag army than a royal court. And as he marches toward his date with destiny in Jerusalem, the angry clouds of controversy swirl around his head. And to the untrained eye, it seems he's far removed from being the king of kings and the lord of lords. Yet his mother, this mother, saw past the superficial to the day when Jesus would indeed reign on this earth. So give her credit for that. She believed when most people doubted. Secondly, we see here that it's clear that Jesus loved her sons. He gave them a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. It's kind of maybe like giving them a nickname or a Maybe they were going to be his mascot. I like that. I think that would have been a good name for Maranatha. <laughs> Sons of Thunder. Instead of Sabercats. I'm not convinced that's the best name yet, but that's the new name for Maranatha Baptist University. Sabercats. I, I refer to them as the Cybercats because they have online classes, so they would be the Cybercats, right? That won't work. Oh, well. well they didn't ask me anyway. But Jesus gives these fellows a nickname, Sons of Thunder. I think it was a a name of affection. Uh, Thirdly, we find that these were the earliest disciples that Jesus had chosen. So that means they should get more recognition, right? Well then, fourthly, we find here they were part of the inner circle. They, along with Peter, were clearly in the top three of all the apostles, Remember when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, it was only witnessed by Peter, James, and John. So they were a part of this inner circle. So why shouldn't she ask that her boys have a seat of highest honor? Why shouldn't they have a place of power and prestige and intimacy? After all, someone had to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left. Might as well be James and John, right? And it couldn't hurt to ask. Maybe in advance, you know, get your request in early. First come, first serve. Well, if you read the other apostles or the other gospels, it's clear that this was kind of a recurring controversy among the disciples all the way until the Lord's Supper in the upper room the night before Jesus was crucified. No matter what we may think about James and John and especially their mother, the other disciples all wanted that seat as well. They were competitive. They were keeping score in order to get ahead of the other ones. Well, the basic problem is that James and John underestimated the cost of following Christ, and they overestimated their own importance. They didn't ask for work in in the coming kingdom, which probably would have been the nobler request. They asked only for a place of honor. Seniority was their plea. We've been here longer except for Peter, and they probably thought the kingdom was coming, so they wanted to get their applications in early. And to use the phrase from the college admissions process, they wanted early decision by Jesus. Perhaps they intended to trade on the family ties and the friendship to get a high place. What would Jesus say to this brash request? Notice secondly this morning, the high cost. The high cost, we look in verse 22. 
It says, but Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I baptize with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it prepared of my father. Jesus doesn't rebuke the mother, doesn't rebuke the sons. He doesn't even deny that his coming kingdom uh, or that there will be seats of honor. Leaving aside the selfish moments, motives for a moment, you know, there's nothing wrong with a question per se, but Jesus simply tells them they don't know what they're asking for. And then he asks the men if they would be able to drink the cup that he's about to drink. And with commendable bravery, they reply, We are able. They confidently say that they're able. They're brave. They're honest. Not very smart, but they're brave. Sometimes our perspective gets a bit out of whack and we forget our limitations, don't we? Remember that old boxer, Muhammad Ali, better known as Cassius Clay in my day. He was on a plane and the steward asked him to buckle his seatbelt. He said, Superman don't need seatbelt. Well, she quickly answered, Superman don't need airplane either. <laughs> you know, sometimes we get our, our, our limitations out of whack, don't we? Jesus doesn't turn to these men and doesn't put them down. He, he says, he doesn't say, you know, just forget about it. You'll never be at a place of honor at my table. No, he doesn't. He just raises the bar. He says, you want to sit next to me? Fine. This is what it's going to cost you. We need to be reminded to be careful when we pray uh, because we might get what we ask for. James and John assumed their suffering was over. Their work was done. But they were wrong on both counts. Their suffering still was ahead of them and their work was just getting started. Now the concept here of the cup in the Bible speaks of an intense personal experience. It's the same image Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed that the cup of suffering that he was about to drink would be taken from him. And that cup was the burden of bearing the sins of the world. Jesus also mentions baptism here, and he was about to undergo. Now, I don't believe this is water baptism in the sense that we know it, but it is the word baptism, which means immersion. And it's ta he's talking about a full immersion in the suffering and fulfilled in his baptism of blood on the cross. Look back at verse 17 through 19. It says here, And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Now in these verses, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be spat upon. He's going to ultimately be crucified. 
You see, nothing was hidden to him. He went to Jerusalem with full knowledge of what was about to take place. And when Jesus challenges James and John here to join him in drinking the cup and taking his baptism, he's calling for them to suffer in his name. Only he could pay for the sins of the world, but they could suffer with him by being faithful to him. And that's what the apostles had to look forward to if they were truly wanting to follow Christ. And that's exactly what happened. James became the first apostle to die. He was put to death by Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12. John was the last apostle to die. He ended up in exile on the island of Patmos. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, you know, I admire your bravery. I'm going to reward you by making you bookends for the apostles. The one's going to be the first to die. The other one's going to be the last to die. Years ago when I was in college, I worked in, uh, in a cemetery. That was one of the ways I worked my way through mowing the lawns and helping dig graves and trim the bushes and so forth. We had a, a boss, my boss or supervisor, an old guy that uh, uh, lived back in the 30s and the 40s. Oh, that's the 1930s and 1940s. And he, he always kept on talking about working for the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps. I think there was also another, uh, if anybody from California, there's a call to CCC, the California Conservation Corps, and their motto, that's kind of a Peace Corps for teenagers, but their motto was long hours, hard work, low pay. Long hours, hard work, low pay. And as the saying goes, if it were easy, anyone could do it. One preacher summed it up, sums up the Christian life, said, God isn't training Boy Scouts, He's training soldiers. And he's right. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to work long and hard, and the pay won't necessarily make you rich. By the, but the retirement benefits are out of this world. And so that's the deal. You want it or don't or not. Well, James and John wanted to talk about the glory, but Jesus replies by telling them about their suffering. They wanted Resurrection Sunday without Crucifixion Day. They wanted a crown without a cross. And Jesus said, no deal. It's almost as if he was saying, you want to be on my right hand and on my left hand? That's great. Stay with me for a few days and you'll see who is on my right hand and who's on my left. Remember when Jesus died, there was two thieves, one on the right and one on the left. A dying thief on one side and a dying thief on the other. And Jesus was saying, I'm about to be crucified. The Romans have two empty crosses. You want to make a reservation? When Jesus said, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? He was inviting them to come and die with him. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Here we come to the bottom line of life. It's a question you and I need to answer. Are you willing to sacrifice everything that is dear to you in order to follow Christ? If the answer is yes, then you can also share in the rewards. These are not 
words just to toss around lightly. You only make this kind of commitment when you've found something worth dying for, something giving your life for. Jesus also informs James and John that he wasn't in charge of the seating arrangements in, king, in the kingdom. He's the host, but the Father would handle the seating chart. The most important thing that God's kingdom is this. Make sure you're there. Don't get left out. Once you get in, then you can check the seating chart. And don't worry. Every seat's going to be near Jesus. I believe that every one of us will be close to the Lord. Every table is going to be near, near him. No one's going to have an obstructed view. That brings us to the third point here this morning. That is a high standard. A high standard. Verse 24. Verse 24, it says, And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. And Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are of great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now the disciples had started to argue among themselves, and that shouldn't surprise us either. I'm sure the other ten apostles were angry with James and John for going to Jesus when they wished they had thought of it first. This whole episode begins with a strange request by the mother of James and John. It ends up with a heated dispute. Perfectly natural because we're human and we're born to compete, to fight for the top spot, to be number one. Winning and losing is what life is all about. Whether we admit it or not, getting ahead of our friends is a major motivation in many things that we do. And so before we condemn the disciples, we ought to take a good look in the mirror. Once again, Jesus doesn't condemn these men, but he uses their bickering and their argument as a teachable moment to challenge them to channel their ambition in a new direction. Ambition was something of a dirty word in our day. Many people think, you know, if you're ambitious, you're, you have an overwhelming desire for personal advancement regardless of the cost, and you'll step on anybody to get ahead. And a lot of that is true in our world that we live in. There's entirely too much of that kind of ambition. Every company or office or factory, every school or college, you can always find some people that are willing to play fast and loose with the truth. It'll help them climb the corporate ladder. They'll cut corners. They'll lie on their expense reports. They'll spread malicious gossip. They'll abuse authority. They'll know how to stab you in the back and walk away laughing. It's the kind of world we live in. Jesus knew about these men. He knew that they were this way. He understood that his followers would be tempted to use the same tactics. And I believe four simple words he radically broke with that kind of ambition. As he says here, not so with you. And then he paints an entirely different picture of ambition. If you want to be a leader, 
That's great because the world needs good leaders. And here's what I want you to do. If you want to be a leader, become a servant. You want to be a leader, become a servant. Pick up a towel and start washing dirty feet. Think of yourself as a slave, not as a master. Saying what he did, Jesus offers a complete rejection of the world's way of doing business. Instead of using people, we're to serve them. To press his point home, Christ used the word here that means maid or house servant. He deliberately chose a very humble word to impress upon these men that being a servant was a very humbling occupation. And I don't think Jesus is attacking the concept of authority. It's not that a church should be leaderless. The words of our text go instead to the source of leadership, and truly authority arises out of servanthood. Jesus accepts the premise that ambition can be good and can be godly. It's the pathway that's, a, that's different. It's a good thing to want to lead, but we need to lead the way Jesus led. A real leader asks, how can I serve the needs of others? He does what he needs to get to be done without making a big deal about it. And based on that, there's a very important principle here of choosing leaders. When we're looking for a leader, we need to be sure to ask ourselves, is that person a real servant? The answer is no, then perhaps we need to look somewhere else. So would you like to be a leader? Then be a servant. Be a slave. And then go to the head of the class. I remember a song in our old hymn book. I think brings that truth home to us in a very practical way. It's in our hymn book, I believe. It's entitled Others. Lord, help me to live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Help me in all the work I do to ever be sincere and true and know that all I do for you must needs be done for others. Let self be crucified and slain and buried deep and all in vain. May efforts be to rise again unless to live for others. Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. I believe it was Napoleon Bonaparte who captured a very important truth when he declared, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded empires. But upon what do these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. It was Jesus alone who founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions would die for him. It's entirely true. Out of love, Jesus came to serve others. And after more than 2,000 years, millions have been gladly willing to die for him. Now notice verse 28 as we close this morning. Verse 28 of chapter 20. And even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Here we have the whole Christian message in this one verse. This is Christianity in one verse. And we're told two uh, or several powerful truths. Jesus came to serve so that 
we can serve others, and Jesus came to serve us while we serve others. He's the ultimate servant, and he's not only our example, but he is our servant. He's not only the, not only the disciples' feet that were washed, it's our feet that are washed by the Son of God every time we come to him for cleansing from our sin. You know, it's thrilling and a stunning truth that Jesus is our servant. The Lord of glory came to serve us that we might be able to serve others in his divine power. He not only was the example of servanthood, he also is the servant who empowers us to serve in his name. And the final phrase here in verse 28 brings us to the very heart of the gospel. Christ gave his life a ransom for many. The word ransom there refers to the price paid to redeem a slave or a prisoner. It speaks of our wretched condition because of sin. That price was paid to God to satisfy divine justice so that our punishment might be averted. It cost Christ his very life to be offered up in a bloody sacrifice on the cross. Christ the innocent suffered in place of the guilty so that by his perfect life and his bloody death he might pay the price of our sin. <coughs> he died for all, but only the many who are called will respond to him in true saving grace and faith. Now suppose you ask, well, am I included in the many? Is there room for me? Well, thank God the answer to that is yes. You are in the many if you come by faith to him. As we come to the end of this message, let me just wrap it up with a few simple observations. I know it's easy to criticize this mother. It's easy to criticize her two sons who came to Jesus what seems to be an impetuous and even self-centered request. But as I think about this, I find myself more and more in sympathy with them. At least they're willing to commit themselves. That's more that can be said about most of us. When Jesus started talking about the cup and the baptism of the blood, I'm sure we would have wanted to postpone our decision so we could think about it a little more. Maybe we have would have tried to renegotiate our contract to get a better deal. But Jesus will bless James and John. And God will bless their courageous mother. At least these boys were willing to take a stand for Jesus. They were willing to die for him. They didn't know all the details, but they had signed up for, but they signed up anyway. And they didn't wait till the resurrection to choose sides. Years later, they would pay a heavy price. And so let's learn from this that the road to heaven is always goes by the way of the cross. If you skip the cross, you end up missing heaven too. Someone has pointed out that if crosses would leave us alone, we would leave them alone too. But the cross of Christ will never leave us alone. It stands at the center of our faith. Take the cross out of Christianity and you've taken Jesus out as well. We're called to follow Jesus. And that means denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily, and following him wherever he leads us. This morning I close with this question from Christ as he asked his two eager apostles, Are you able? 
And that's the question he asks you and me this morning. Are you able? Are you able to drink the cup of suffering? Are you able to follow Jesus to the cross? Are you willing to follow God's plan for your life no matter what it takes and no matter where it leads? Are you willing to serve instead of rule? Are you willing to serve before you rule? Are you willing to serve as you rule? In the end, our greatest need is Jesus. And it always comes back to Him, doesn't it? We're called to follow Him when His steps may lead to the cross. Footsteps of Jesus. Are you willing? Are you able? Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven.